Father, we thank you that you are a God who promises to make us more like Jesus when we trust in him. We pray now by your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us through your word on this question and you would encourage us to keep drawing close to you so that we can become holy and like Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So can I really change? That's the question this evening. Someone might say, I became a Christian a few years ago. There was some immediate change. I stopped swearing. I stopped getting drunk, maybe. But I still had a terrible temper that comes out when I'm under pressure. I never set out to lose my temper, but it just happens. Can I really change? Someone might say, I love Jesus and I want to serve him, but sometimes I realise how many of my decisions are driven by fear of what other people think of me. I want to be liked, I want to be loved, I want to be accepted, I hate sticking out and being different. I know I'm supposed to fear God, but somehow I still keep living more in fear of others. Can I really change? Or somebody else, I have a kind of background issue with pornography and lustful fantasies. And it, you know, it started when I was a teenager and it's never really gone away. And I go through good times and not so good times. And in the good times I feel close to God, but in the bad times I wonder, can I ever really change? Or someone says, outwardly, you know, I guess I look like a pretty good Christian. I tick all the boxes with having a quiet time in the morning, I'm not sleeping around, I tithe my income, I serve in the children's work at church and in a number of other ways or whatever it might be, but on the inside, I lack joy in Christ. And I kind of know that I'm serving out of box-ticking duty. I can't ever seem to shake off the need to prove myself. Can I ever really change? What would it be for you? What would be your besetting sin that you fear might never go away? If you're anything like me, there will, there will be things that you're aware of in your life that maybe you've tried to change, maybe you've made new resolutions, even made some progress from time to time, and yet it feels like real lasting change never seems to happen. Well, that is what we're thinking about this evening. And we're, we're going to dot around the Bible a little bit to help us with this, but the, the readings that we heard are going to be particularly helpful, and we're going to Look at those. And I've been helped, as I've been thinking about this, with, by this book, which I highly recommend if you want to look into this further, which is called You Can Change. Very positive title. You Can Change by um, Tim Chester. Um, and lots of what I say it comes very helpfully out of there. So, three things that help us to see that change really is possible and what needs to happen change to take place. Here's the first thing. Change is God's job, not ours. Change is God's job, not ours. That reading that we heard from Colossians, the second one, is really helpful. Page 1183, if you want to turn to it and see. Because there, Paul reminds us that often we recognise that we need to change, but we go about it in the wrong way. So I might think, well, I need to change, I need to Stop doing this, I need to start doing that. I'm going to make a vow. And from now on, there will be no more lust. And it starts today. And I've decided, and I'm going to work really hard at it. But listen to what Paul says. So down in verse 20 
on page 1183, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. See, what's he saying? He's saying if we think change is all down to us and that what we've been missing all this time is some tweak in our daily habits some new spiritual technique or or way of praying or whatever it might be. And if we think that that is the secret of change that we've been lacking all this time, we just need to try harder to keep the rules. Well, actually, no, we're looking in completely the wrong place, Paul is saying. In fact, when we think about it like that, we're failing to acknowledge how big a problem sin really is. It's so big, we cannot change it ourselves. So it's like the difference between a mild headache and stage four cancer or something like that. You know, you can fix a mild headache with some water, some paracetamol. You won't fix stage four cancer by yourself. But we often approach sin as if it's more in the mild headache category. You know, I I ought to be able to get this under control myself by, by doing a few things. The point is we can't. We need help. And that is the point of the gospel. That is the point of Jesus coming into the world so that God might save us and so that he might change us. It's his job. And he promises to use all our circumstances to make us more like Jesus. So Romans chapter 8 verse 28, great verse to keep going back to. Romans 8 28, in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And in the next verse, he tells us what that good is. He has predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his son. In other words, he he, he wants to work through all things to make us like Jesus. Change is God's job, it's not ours. And even just understanding that can be revolutionary because it should drive us away from relying on ourselves and towards relying on God. Because only he can change us. That's the first thing that we need to see. But does that mean we just sit back and we do nothing then? Well, no, not at all. Because actually this parallels what is true about salvation as a whole. It is God who saves us, but we need to repent. That is, turn from sin, and we need to put our faith in him. It's still his work, but we need to receive it. And that is still true when it's comes to the change that God works in us. And Paul spells that out again in Colossians chapter 2. He says, verse 6, Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Can you see what he's saying there? You carry on in the Christian life as you began. You begin by receiving the gift of what God has done for you in Christ. It's a gift you receive by faith. And then your Christian life carries on in exactly the same way. You carry on receiving what God has given you and the change that he's doing in you. You receive it as a gift. You don't have to go out there and make it happen all by yourself. So change is God's job, not ours. And then that takes us to the second and then the third point. Because change then, if it's God's job not ours, it means turning from sin and then proclaiming God's truth 
to our hearts. So secondly, change means turning from sin. If you're an alcoholic, the road to recovery begins with the words, my name is John and I'm an alcoholic. In other words, you begin by owning the problem. And the Bible approaches sin in exactly the same way. That was spelt out in the reading that we heard from Mark's Gospel. People often debate whether the problems that human beings face are caused by nature or nurture. Are they fundamentally in here or are they out there? And the Bible makes it clear that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. So if you turn again with me to page 1010 in the Bibles, you'll see that reading again, Mark chapter 7, page 1010. Jesus says to the Pharisees, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can make him unclean? So they're having this argument about whether, you know, should, should you um, follow the ceremonial washing and things before you have a meal? He's saying, no, no, it's not about the things you do on the outside that make there's a problem between you and God. Something that you can wash off with water. No, it's all about what's inside. It's what comes out of you that makes you unclean. It's not, again, it's not what you eat that, you know, avoiding certain types of food can make you clean. It's not about what goes into your body. It's what comes out of your body, out of your heart. That is where the problem is. So that sin that we struggle with, the temper, the lust, the fear of others, the drive to prove ourselves, the pride and arrogance, the selfishness, it all comes from in here. And so when Jesus stepped into the world to begin this great change project for human beings, his message was clear and simple. Repent and believe the good news. Repent means turning from this sin which is deep within each one of us. What then does that mean? Well, it means we need first to acknowledge its ugliness. Its ugliness. The ugliness of what's in our hearts. Perhaps one of the reasons we struggle to turn from sin and we continue to entertain it in our hearts and in our lives is because we don't really believe that it's evil. I wonder if that feels familiar. Listen to how God describes sin in various ways through the Bible. He calls it a stain, Jeremiah 2.22. He calls it filthy vomit, Isaiah 28.8. Even our righteous acts are like filthy rags, Isaiah 64 verse 6. And actually the word that's used in Isaiah there literally means menstrual cloths. It's filthy. We are corrupt, Psalm 14, verse 3. The point is, sin is ugly, it's disgusting. But do we believe that? Or do we think, oh, well, you know, never little bits of doing my own thing my own way, that doesn't hurt anybody. And we try and explain away and minimise and pretend it's not as bad as all that. Everyone loses their temper sometimes, it's just what I'm like. Or that sense that I must worry about what people think of me, you know, I I must do that for fear of missing out. I can't bear to be lonely. It's only human to feel like this. You see, we we, we try and justify these things. Or, Or with lust and with porn, which can be a massive issue for both men and women, it's okay because everyone else is doing it. It's okay because I'm single. It's okay because it makes me feel better. 
But with all these things, you know, a bad temper is destructive for ourselves and our relationships with those we love. A fear of others is simply idolatry. It's finding purpose and meaning in someone other than the God who made us. Uh, It's no different from from cutting an idol out of wood and putting it on your mantelpiece and worshipping it as a God. And then when it comes to lust and porn, there's, a, there's another great um, book on this particular issue, if you want to think about this more. It's by the same author, Tim Chester. It's called Captured by a Better Vision. Again, really helpful. And he, in here, he lists 12 truths about pornography that you can also apply to lust more generally in, in many cases. He says this, let me, I'll just list them for you. Just to get that sense of how ugly this is when we're so tempted to kind of normalise and say, oh, it's okay, it doesn't really hurt anybody. Here's, here's the things he says. Porn wrecks your view of sex. It wrecks your view of women or men. In the case of women, the porn industry wrecks women's view of themselves. It abuses women because these women in these photos are each someone's daughter, someone's future wife. It's a sin against your spouse or your future spouse. It wrecks families. It's enslaving. It erodes your character. It wastes your time, your energy, your money. It weakens your relationship with God. It weakens your Christian service. And God hates it. Do you get the point? It's ugly. Sin is ugly. And actually all sin is like that. That is the point, you see. It is wrecking our relationships with one another. And it's wrecking our relationship with God. And so we need to see it. If we're going to turn from it, if we're really going to change, which is what we're talking about this evening, we're going to change from whatever the sin particular issue is that we think, oh, I'd love to not be like that. We've got to start by bringing it out into the open and just saying, yeah, this is ugly. This is horrible. There are different ways we can do that. Maybe it might help to sort of talk it through with a friend that we trust. But we need to find a way to see and believe that it really is ugly before we will be willing to turn from it. And then when we do that, we need to confess it before God. And back, you know, sometimes, again, it's helpful to do that alongside a trusted friend. And in the mornings this term, we've been looking at 1 John. And there are these glorious verses there about sin. You know, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. That's what we're so tempted to do with these things. Just, oh, it's not really a problem. If we believe that, we're never going to change. But... If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will cleanse us. He will change us. He will do the changing. And it happens as we go to him and say, this is ugly. I, I, I long for this not to be in my life. I confess it before you, Lord. Thank you that Jesus died for me. Thank you that I can simply put my trust in him and trust you then to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So there is hope. And it starts with admitting that our sin is very ugly and bringing that to God. And then, finally, change means preaching God's truth to our hearts. Preaching God's truth to our hearts. We do not change ourselves. God changes us. He calls us to turn from our sin. And of course, he enables us to do that. He calls us to turn to him and simply trust him. But we so easily forget who this God is who calls us to trust. 
So we, we saw before, it's easy to have too shallow a view of sin. It's also just as easy to have too shallow a view of God. And another reason we may not want to change is that we're not convinced it's worth it. So we're not really convinced that God can be trusted. We're not really convinced that his promises are true, that he is good. And so we can let this sin that so grips our hearts, we can let it go because we can go to someone who is better and greater. Someone who is truly good. Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Can you see what the psalmist is doing as he, as he does that? He's preaching to his heart about God. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So here's the question for us all. Do we believe that if we have Jesus, we have everything we need? Because if we don't actually believe that, if we don't really own that for ourselves, we won't find the motivation to change. We will cling to old patterns and habits and idols. And actually, if we're not yet trusting in Jesus for ourselves, it would be no surprise that we find it really hard to, to change and to, 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 to put to death old habits of, in our lives because we need Jesus and because we need to see how good he is. And when we do see that, we then need to preach that to our hearts day in and day out. The author C.S. Lewis put it like this. The moment you wake up each morning, all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. Isn't that true? I know it is for me. And the first job he carries on, the first job of each morning consists in shoving them all back in. In listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. Isn't that a brilliant way of describing it? You've got to keep preaching to yourself and saying, no, heart, you need to hear the gospel this morning as you head into another day. So here are four things about God that we need to keep preaching to our hearts as we struggle with sin. And they come from Psalm 62, verses 11 and 12, which says this. You can turn to it if you want, but it says this. It says, once God has spoken... Twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. So power, in God there is power, which is about God's greatness and glory. And then in God there is steadfast love, that's about his goodness and grace. So greatness and glory, goodness and grace. These are four truths that we need to keep preaching to our hearts about God, that he is great, he is glorious, he is good, and he is full of grace. So let's see that in a bit more detail. He is, first of all, he is great. And that means if God is great, I don't need to be in control. God is great, I don't need to be in control. How, how does that apply to us? Well, think about this. What is anger about? Why do we cry out in rage when computers crash, or the dinner is burnt, or there is more traffic than anticipated, or other people do stupid things. Actually, isn't that a form of shaking our fist at our Creator? We're saying, yes, I, I, you know, I trust you, God, but hang on a minute, not like this. You know, you're not supposed to do it like this. And so, that's where anger comes from. 
But what do we see of Jesus in the Gospels? We see somebody who is totally in control. Who has all authority over nature, over evil, over sickness, over death, and even over his own death. He has total authority over everything. He's in control. So then when we don't believe that, or we don't trust him, that's where we get into problems. Do you see? And that's why we end up getting angry, because we think, no, 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 I've somehow got to be in control here, and I'm not, and that makes me cross. Or we end up, through that same dynamic, we end up manipulating or dominating others. We wear ourselves out through busyness and frustration. We put our security in money or status because we just can't quite believe that we can trust God with this. And so we say, no, I've got to cling on to it for myself. And we worry and we fret. Remember what Jesus says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? He cares for little sparrows and he clothes lilies and even the hairs on your head are numbered by your heavenly father. He's in control. So let's preach that to our hearts. God is great. I don't need to be in control. Then then the second thing from Psalm 62, verse 11 and 12, was uh, because power belongs to God, is that God is glorious. So we don't need to fear others. God is glorious, so we don't need to fear others. So Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 says, Fear of man will be a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is kept safe. What do we do when we fear what other people think of us? Well, it leads to all kinds of things. We give in to peer pressure. We need approval from others. We become obsessed with self-esteem. We overcommit because we can't say no. We fear being exposed. We tell white lies to make ourselves look good. Other people make us jealous or anxious. We avoid people. We compare ourselves. We fear talking to non-Christians about Jesus because we just think, I'm not sh- you know, I, I, I I want them to like me. We fear what they think of us. And all of these things are symptoms fearing what other people think. And the Bible says the answer is to fear God instead. And fearing God isn't sort of being, you know, terrified and thinking, oh, you know, um, that kind of fear. But it's the kind of fear that means respecting God, worshipping him, trusting him, submitting to him. This is how the Psalms deal with situations where the psalmist is is struggling to trust God. What does the psalmist do? He reminds himself of how glorious God is. He is holy, he's powerful, he's all-loving, he's all-good, he's perfectly just. And so then when we remember who God is, whose approval really matters in the end. So the boss may be a bully... Colleagues may have the ability to include you or exclude you from their inner circle on a whim. But none of them are bigger than God. And he's the judge of all. So we need to keep preaching that to our hearts. God is glorious. We don't need to fear others. Then Psalm 62 points us to God's steadfast love. So God is good. We don't have to look elsewhere. God is good. Tim Chester, in in that book, talks about an elderly widow he'd heard about in Russia who took a job 
cleaning the stairwells in a dirty old apartment block. Now, she doesn't need the money for herself, but she wants to earn extra money for missionaries working in Mongolia. Now, why would someone do that? The answer is joy. See, the person who is convinced God is a dreary spoil sport or, or a kind of distant box-ticking headmaster with his clipboard in the sky waiting for us to mess up and do wrong, see, that person will never give of themselves like that widow. But God is not that dreary spoil sport and he's not the distant box-ticking headmaster in the sky with his clipboard. He is perfectly and he's wonderfully good. The woman that meets Jesus at the well in John chapter 4, she's been looking everywhere for satisfaction. And after five husbands, still she couldn't find it. But Jesus says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. And indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So do you see, there's no need to keep looking in all these different places for what satisfies. Or maybe we found ourselves doing that over this weekend, you know, Black Friday. We know we think, oh, I've got, you know, satisfaction is going to come from this new thing. No, we can find that in Jesus. It's all in Jesus. And he's not just better than anything sin can offer. He is forever. He's good. He's the best. So do we trust him? God is good. We don't have to look elsewhere. And then God is gracious. That's the the last thing. His steadfast love tells us that God is gracious. So we do not have to prove ourselves. This is what we need to hear when we're struggling with feeling either proud or inferior. Do you notice that? Those two things really go together. You know, some days we feel proud and, and, and like we're doing really well. Other days we feel dreadfully inferior and like we're not measuring up, whether it's to other people's expectations or to our own expectations. Actually, those are really two sides of the same coin. They're both just as bad as each other. And so we end up either constantly pushing ourselves beyond what we can gladly give or just sort of puffing ourselves up and and going around telling ourselves or other people how wonderful we think we are. But we do that because we think we have to prove how good we are. We have to prove that we are good enough. And so what happens then is when we don't pray one day or for a week or a year or whatever, or we miss church or we mess up in sin, we become like the prodigal son, miles away from home, and we're sort of rehearsing the speech that we're going to have to make for God to accept us again. I will be your slave, I will come back and I will serve you. And we drag ourselves back to him, not realising that he is a loving father who will come running when he sees his child coming home. And he will put on the best party for his child, when his child comes back. See, we need to keep believing and preaching these glorious truths to our hearts. And that is where we will find the motivation to change. And that is how God will work the change that he works in us. We're not talking about perfectionism. You know, we, this side of heaven, we will always struggle 
There will always be sin. And what happens generally is just as we make progress in one area that we've been very conscious of and then God is working in us and we may start to see change, we'll just become aware of something else that we hadn't even thought about before. And God will be, again, gently nudging us and challenging us to turn from sin and turn back turn back to him it's a lifelong process this change process but it is god's job so let's keep trusting him let's keep turning from sin let's keep preaching these glorious truths about god to our hearts let me pray now Father, thank you that it's not down to us to change ourselves in our own strength. Thank you that you promise through all things to make us like Jesus. If we're aware of particular things in our lives that we'd love to see change, that we know you would love to see change, we pray, Heavenly Father, that our response would be to come again to the foot of the cross to confess the ugliness of these things, to cry out to you, knowing that you are good, that you are glorious, that you are uh, amazingly great, that you are somebody in whom we can trust with all our hearts and all our lives, and so we can trust you to change us Please would you be doing that work in us this week and beyond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.